So, the theology crowd. There you are. Right? Um, I give some version of this talk, I think, every year now for 12 years. It's my 12th year at GMHC. And we've never, we've never just sort of flat out called it a theology of missions. We usually give it some sort of like vague-ish sort of title. And then everybody comes and it turns out to be a theology of missions. But this year we just decided, just going to let it all hang out and just flat out call it a theology of missions. But I've already tweaked it a little bit by calling it a biblical theology of missions. Um, not that just a theology of missions wouldn't be biblical, but... We'll get started here in a second. First of all, I'll just introduce myself just really briefly. Brian Vickers, you probably know me from the catalog. Um, I live right here in Louisville. I teach just right down the road, not that far from here, at a school called Southern Seminary. Um, Been there for 15 years. I teach New Testament and um, biblical interpretation and everything that goes along with that. I got invited. uh, See, how did I get invited to GMHC? Actually, I do know one of my colleagues who's really well-known named Tom Schreiner, was asked to come, and he had to back out, and they asked me. And so that's how I got, that's how I got started with GMHC, sort of Tom's coattails. And uh, then I just, once I'm in a place, it's hard to get rid of me, so that's how I've stayed around for so long. So what we're going to do tonight, tonight, I'm getting ahead of myself, is talk about a theology of missions, but maybe not exactly in the way that you might have been expecting. I wish I had time. I, asked, I wanted to ask this question yesterday. I had a session on theology of poverty, which also turned out to probably be different than everybody expected. Um, I would really like to know, if we had time, what each one of you thought when you saw theology of missions, right? Because everybody, I'm sure, had some idea. Now, you might have thought, no idea what that guy's going to say. I'm just going to go see. But there had to be something in the title that, um, that brought you here. And I wish I could take the time to... Uh, to ask you, be interesting to me. Uh, though one year a guy did tell me that he came to one of my talks specifically to see how much he would disagree with me. And um, I said, how much? And he said, not as much as I thought I would. So I don't really know how to take that. Several years ago, but I still think about it. I haven't seen him since. But a biblical theology of missions. So usually when we think of a theology of missions... If we even think about it, we think of missions, we think of things like calling, which, by the way, just a little advertisement, right after this I'm doing a talk on the missionary calling. Um, So if you want to know if you're called to missions, I will tell you, like 100% yes or no, next hour if you want to come. You guys are the theology crowd. You're just just frowning back at me, right? I mean, I teach theology students all the time, so I'm used to it, right? So it doesn't phase me. That's fine. All right. So, we usually do think of things like calling or geography. That's a big one. We start thinking about missions. We think about geography. Um, or we think about gifts. Do I have the right gifts? And any number of things. Or um, maybe we just think of a collection of Bible verses or something. And we're going to look at plenty of Bible verses in a minute. Uh, but just a quick question. Have you ever thought about missions, especially, specifically a theology of missions, as really... A story. And I don't mean I'm going to turn it into a story of, like a history story. But that the theology of missions in the Bible is really a story. And it is God's biggest story. Now, and you may have thought about this. I'm sure that's occurred to you before. 
But have you ever thought about it being sort of your story? And that, whether or not you have the word missionary tagged to your name, the reality is, if you're here today and you name Jesus as Lord, the story, the theological, biblical theological story of missions is your story. It's sort of a like it or not kind of issue too. Uh, because you can't avoid it. It's, it's who you are. It tells you who you are. It tells you where you came from. It tells you what your identity is. All kinds of things. And we're all plugged into it just by being here. And not by being here, but by being here because we're Christians. Now, of course, there's various degrees of personal involvement. I'm not talking about those sorts of things. But I like to talk about missions as really sort of the, just about the biggest story of all in the entire Bible. And, you know, we come to the Bible and we come to certain verses, right? Here's the big one. You, know, you knew this was coming, so I'm just going to put it up right off the bat. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So the Great Commission, right? It's everybody's favorite and most well-known mission text. Okay? So we all know it's there. What else do we need? Right? So on one level, if somebody... If they just know this and they're fired up for mission support or going, I'm fine, right? Uh, that's, that's great. But if we talk about a theology of missions, I think it's, it's not more than this. Um, or it's not, I should say this. It's not less than this, but it's more. Because this is just a, this is one verse, as vital as it is. But this verse gets its start centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries before it was spoken. Right? So Matthew is writing this down somewhere in the, in the AD 60s. Right? So Matthew's writing this down. Paul's written almost all of his letters. Uh, James has been written. Uh, first Peter, tons of things have already been written. Matthew's writing it down. Jesus spoke it right a couple of decades earlier. Um, but it didn't begin here. It actually began way back in a desert uh, to a guy that we're going to talk about here in a minute. And so if we want to start thinking about a story of missions, we can't just sort of come to the Great Commission and kind of envision ourselves there somehow or the inheritors of the disciples and think, okay, we do missions, right? Because Jesus sent us to do missions. Now, again, if you think that, 100% amen. And so I'm not at all going to, I'm going to maybe tweak that a little bit, but I'm not going to take that away. You get to keep that. We're just going to add some stuff to it to kind of support why it's there and how it got there in the first place. So that's a general statement, right? But what if you wanted a theology of medical missions? What's that? Or a, a theology of relief missions? What would that be? Right? Or what about a theology of a missionary or a missionary profile or missionary characteristics, what would you do? What would you do? Well, we might do sort of the thing that we do when we come to the Bible, and that is we have an idea, we go to the Bible, we have, a, we have an idea that we know is in the Bible or that we heard from the Bible. 
then we come to the Bible and we kind of just look through one way or another and kind of find texts, right, that can help us, sort of support us, uh, give us sort of some motivation or make us feel like, you know, I'm on the right track or here's enough, I got enough verses stacked up here, I, I see, right? But the fact is, whatever it is we want to sort of show ourselves or prove ourselves, we can probably go find it. And this, I like this quote from Christopher Wright from this great book called The Mission of God. We've already decided what we want to prove. That is missions in this case. And our collection of texts simply ratifies our pre- preconception. The Bible is turned into a mine from which we extract gems, that is, in this case, missionary texts. And I think we often read the Bible generally that way. As like a, it's a collection of various texts about various things. Uh, and, you know, it is. But we kind of come to the Bible and think of it just like that. Right? We know which sections deal with missions. We, knew, we know which sections maybe deal with discipleship. Uh, we might know sort of which sections deal with, like, like Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus is teaching. You might go to the Sermon on the Mount. Um, or, or, you know, the specific things like what it means to be right with God, maybe Romans or Galatians. And we know where these certain places are, right? And then we get the other places kind of maybe in our annual Bible reading plan, depending on how far along in the year we are. And we just sort of read the Bible that way. And I'm for reading the Bible in any way. I would not ever discourage any sort of reading the Bible. But one of the things I think we sort of miss sometimes is that the Bible, even though it's not all a narrative, the Bible is a big coherent story, which is a pretty radical claim for a book that was written down over the course of like 1,500 years. I'm just talking about the writing of it, by the way. I'm talking about the living out of it. Um, one year I said 1,500 years, and a guy came up and said, are you trying to tell me Adam was alive 1,500 years ago? I'm like, no, I'm not at all saying that. I'm just saying from like the writing to the end of the writing, roughly 1,500 years. But it claims to be about sort of one thing. And it never really claims to be sort of a collection of a little bit of this and a little bit of that, missions, salvation, teaching, discipleship, whatever else you got, right? Even though all that stuff is in there. So, the reason I like to talk about missions as a story is because everybody loves stories. I love stories. You love stories. One of the stories we love best is our own story. We like to talk about ourselves. Uh, We do that in a sort of a short, brief thing when we meet other people. If we sit down to talk to other people, we, we tell stories. That's how we communicate. That's how we relate to things. That's how we remember things best. Um, and so we even think about the world according to stories. When you think about your life, whether you think of it this way or not, you sort of conceive of it as a story. Or as any event in your life, you think about it as a story. If you, if you talk to other people, you, will tell, you won't just give them sort of, here's ten facts to know about me. Right? You might if you're asked, but that's not generally how we speak, right? We don't usually communicate by just listing a sort of set of facts. This is who I am. Or, you know, I'm originally from West Virginia. If, if, I, if you ask me to tell you about what it's like to be from West Virginia, I'm not going to say, well, there's five things you need to know about being from West Virginia. No, I would just tell you stories about me growing up in West Virginia. Right? Because that's what we do. And the Bible is not only that, right? But it's similar in that it contains a big story. But here's the important thing. If you don't come away with anything else today, which hopefully you will, and it's this... 
one of the places we go wrong when we're reading the Bible is we read it like it's just some story about a whole bunch of people who lived a long time ago and finally one of those people was called Jesus and then he rose from the dead and went to heaven, the end. And we conceive of our life, right? Because we, we talk about the Bible all the time. We, we, we talk about being based in the Bible, right? Everything flows from the Bible. We preach the Bible. We share the Bible. But we often do it in this sort of detached way, right? The Bible is like the Christian handbook that just tells us things. And then there's our life, right? So there's my life. Here's the Bible. The Bible's like the guide to my life. And, you know, there's a, you know, there's a certain part of that that's true. But the thing about the story of the Bible, and if you want to really plug into the story of missions, is one of the things we need to grasp is it's not just a story about a whole bunch of people who lived a long time ago with a lot different names than us, and then finally somebody named Jesus, and then the end, and then everything else started. What we have to understand is our story is that story. The people in that story, that's your story. You're part of that. You're not just reading some facts about, like we're going to talk about Abraham in a minute. You ever thought about Abraham and your relationship to him? That he's part of your story? Like if you were really going to tell the big story of your life, to really, really tell it if you had enough time and somebody interested enough to listen long enough, you would have to eventually mention Abraham or you wouldn't really be telling your whole entire story. Because he's part of our story. And on one level, without Abraham, we're not even here. And I have, this has nothing to do with biology, by the way. Nothing. And so that's, that's kind of the way I want to approach it. There's lots of ways you can approach a theology of missions, but this is what we're going to do today. All right, so here's the story. This is the Bible. Anybody on an annual Bible reading plan this year? Nobody? Wow, like, okay. There's like three people reading the Bible this year. That's great. Okay, so try to amp that up just a little bit. All right, but, but if you're not, the good news for you is, here's the story. God created the world, created human beings who rebelled against him, attempting to become the one thing they could never be. That is, like God rather than creatures. Right? That's what they did. That was the big temptation. Uh, you can be like God. That one thing, they could be lots of things. They could never be that. By the way, any time that we are faced with any temptation, it is the same temptation that we can be like God and decide what's right and wrong and be the boss and make our own decisions and go some other way. It's the same thing. Repeated. Every single thing that we fall, every temptation we fall into is at the heart of it is this temptation that we can be something that is impossible for us to be and that is God. Right? So, you have this. Uh, then he set, God set about carrying out his eternal plan to redeem people through his son, Jesus Christ. All the way from the beginning, Paul says in Ephesians 1 that God's eternal plan from before all of creation was to sum up everything in Jesus. So Jesus is not God's plan B. He's like, okay, something went wrong here. I've got to fix this. I got it. Right, according to Paul, Ephesians 1, you can just go look it up. God's plan all along from before the beginning was to sum up, bring everything to its fulfillment in Jesus. And through him to create a people who would believe, obey, and worship the only true God and make his good news of life in Christ known to a world in rebellion. And finally, to establish fully his kingdom in a new heaven and a new earth with Christ the King reigning forever. So, if you haven't yet read the Bible this year, you can kind of tell people that you did. Right? So, right, you're already ahead of the game. Right? You don't have to go into the details. Like, hey, did you read the Bible this year? And say, actually, you know, I sort of did. And so, that's it. 
And every time I read it, I think of ways to make it bigger, but I wanted to fit on one PowerPoint slide. So there's probably some details missing in there somewhere. All right. Here's the story of missions. The story of missions starts in a situation of abject hopelessness. No future. No possibility of a future. No chance. Genesis 11. Now, we might not be familiar with it because it's a, it's a genealogy. And speaking of Bible reading plans, right? What do genealogies do? It makes your Bible reading for that day really fast, right? <laughs> That's how we typically look at them. But you know what most of the genealogies do? You know what they, most of them do, especially like the ones in Genesis and then the ones, you know, there's a whole, whole slew of them, beginning of Numbers and a bunch of the beginning of Chronicles. They're really testimonies to God's faithfulness to his people. So next time you're reading one of these um, Israelite genealogies and you're struggling to get through the names, which is fine, I do too, you can look at those as a testimony that God keeps his promise to his people. And they keep the, the, the genealogies keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And of all the genealogies in Genesis, this is the strangest one. Um, and we often skip over it. It's in kind of a strange place in the Bible, right? You've got the tower and then you've got the call of Abraham. Um, and right in the middle of it, there's this little short genealogy. This is the account of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, right? His name hadn't changed yet. Nahor and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldees in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarai was barren. She had no children. Now, for just one moment, imagine you had never read the Bible before. And you were reading it in a very unique way. That is, you're starting the beginning and reading it like a book till the end. Right? So, if you paid much attention to this at all, which you might not, if you had any thought about Abram, it would be something like this. The end. It's over, right? I mean, what do genealogies do? They show you, you know, where people came from and who, you know, he begat him and her and her and it was through her and on and on they became, you know, like here, like if you notice the, the genealogy of Abram's, of Abram's brother stretches out into the future, right? About, you know, he, she became the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Um, it's sort of pushing out into the future a little bit. Not Abram. Finished. Done. That's it. Now, you might not have ever paid attention to this verse before, but I, I invite you to really spend some time thinking about it because it sets the backdrop for the most... One of the most dramatic scenes in the Bible becomes eight times more dramatic when you think about what was said right before it. About Abram. Genesis 12, God comes to Abram. Who's Abram? He's this guy who's getting old, right? And if you go read about him, if you go read about, about him in Paul, Paul basically says, you know, he was past his sell by date and Sarah couldn't have children. And so, Genesis 12, remember, first time Bible reader, you just read about how this guy's finished. The Lord said to Abram, leave your country, your people, your father's household. Go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. The reason I have that highlighted 
is because we've already seen a verse that we're already familiar with that says something about the nations. And here, Abram's going to be a blessing to the nations. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. That sounds like a great plan. If you're Abram, you might be wondering, how exactly is this going to happen? Right? Wife can't have children. And so God has chosen. Why did God choose Abram? Because he did. No other reason. There's no other reason that God chose Abram. There's, not, there's nothing in the Bible that says that Abram did anything ahead of time that got God's attention and God thought, that guy looks pretty good to me. I'm, I'm going to get on board with him. Not one thing. Nothing. And that's it. Now, there is some tradition in some works that were written between Malachi and Matthew, between the Testaments, actually between Malachi and 1 Thessalonians. But no, that's just technical. Um, where people had come up with these traditions about Abraham being already sort of uh, throwing away his, the idols of his household. But that's not from the Bible. Sometimes those ideas seep in. But there's not one word in the Bible that Abram was any different than anybody else. Not one. That he, you know, and in fact, if he was, you can look this up later. If Abraham, if there was something really, really special about Abraham, then Paul in Romans 4 doesn't know what he's talking about. He has no idea what he's talking about. Because Paul says that it's all by grace and absolutely not from works or anything that you do. Right? So, anyway, I'm probably not really convincing you of something you're not already convinced of. But just to make it clear, Abraham was not showing himself to God to be great. He wasn't showing himself to God as being faithful, more faithful than anybody else. It just says, God appeared to him. And that's all it ever says. But he appears to this guy who can't have any children. And so, you know how this story ends, right? You know what happens going forward, obviously. But that's a pretty big backdrop. It's a backdrop of hopelessness. I think the message is, and this becomes clear, is if this is going to happen, it's not going to be because Abram. If Abram's going to become a great nation, something pretty massive is going to have to happen. Because you pretty much need children to be a great nation. You do. So, a whole bunch of years go by. Like 25 years go by. And Abram, still no kids. Right? 25 years. And it gets to the point where Abram, he's getting even older now, all right? Sarah, still barren. Abram, older. And he gets this idea. He says, there's this guy in my household called Eliezer. And he's going to be my heir. Give him all my stuff. He's going to inherit everything. And that's what it says. And then God shows up again and takes Abram outside and says... Look at the heavens and count the stars if you can. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. And then it says, Abraham believed God, believed God's promise. And Abraham's belief in God's promise, God counts Abraham as right before him. 
Because of belief. Not because Abraham's been churning up anything. He's not, not because he's really... God's not, again, God's not looking at Abraham and being like, man, this guy is... I'm choosing, I want him on my A-team. Nope. God just says, this is what's going to happen. But yet, Abraham, still no children. I don't know about you, but it usually takes me a little more than 25 years to start doubting almost anything. Right? So, 25 years pass. But you know the story. We're not going to... You're like, I know you're thinking, wow, it's 255 and we're in Genesis 15. Right? Don't worry. We're going to end in Revelation. I promise you. And I'm going to tell you what everything means there, if we have time. But we might not have time to get to that last part. So, you probably know this story, right? This story, this promise does come true. Right? Abraham has 12, grandchildren, 12, 12, 12 grandsons, finally. And then 70 close family members from that. But then there's this weird twist in the story where they all go to Egypt, and after a several sort of decades, actually more than that, they all become slaves. Another kind of hopeless situation. Right? It's not really like, up, there's not a lot of upward mobility. If you are a brick maker and a slave in Egypt, your future does not look bright and rosy. But yet, when they come out of there, there are six, over 600,000, and that's just the men alone when they come out of Egypt, right? After years of just being brick makers, they come out of Egypt, 600,000 just men. And then they go into the land. Now we're going to have to speed up a little bit probably. So, Israel. Sometimes we'll go to Israel and we'll think, mission starts with Israel. It doesn't. Because they didn't have missions like we do. They weren't sent to the nations like we are. Now, the reason for this is because there was not yet a message to send them with. Now, before you get sort of rankled about that, there were hints already. You have these prominent figures in Israel's history who are Gentiles. And they play a huge, they play a huge role. Tamar... Rahab, Ruth, by the way, they show up in the genealogy of somebody rather famous named Jesus of Nazareth. Naaman the Syrian, the Shumanite woman, Uriah the Hittite, there's a few more. But the fact is, in the whole Old Testament, sort of people like this, you can count them on two hands. Because the time had not yet come for there to be what something like a great... So there's no great commission for Israel. <clears throat> in fact... Israel's job was to stay put and be Israel. And they would witness that way. That's how they witnessed. They witnessed by staying put and being faithful to God. And I could give you more text, but this one will do. See, I've taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me. This is Moses speaking to them. So that you may follow them in the land you're entering and take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will be... For this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations by doing what? By going into your land and being faithful to God and showing who God is by the way you live there. And that's what they did. Or what they were supposed to do. Of course, we know that is not exactly the way it panned out. So, I often will hear people, like, you know, people will say things like, uh, you know, missions began with Israel. Well, 
The story of missions, yes. Israel as a part, I mean Old Testament Israel. As a part of missions, as part of the story, yes. Integral, can't live without part of the story, yes. But missions like the way we think of it, no. It's just not the same. And I know people make arguments for that, and I don't, I'm not trying to argue with anybody. I don't even know what any of you all think. But that's just not the way it works. However, it is hardwired to the Great Commission. Just like it's hardwired to the story of Abram. Just like it's hardwired to anybody in this room today who calls on the name of Jesus. Right? What you're seeing here is, you know what? This is like your true family tree. It really, really is. It's not just some folks who lived a long time ago. Then they died. Then you got a Bible. Then you, were fi- then you got a Bible. Then you were finally born. And now you read the Bible. You get some facts about the Bible. You go about your life and then go to heaven. It's a story, right? That tells you where you came from. But more than just where you came from, by the way. And we'll see that in a minute. Now, in the story of the Bible in the Old Testament... Even though, even though Israel's main job was to stay put, there's these promise, the promise to Abraham never goes away. And you can see it. Right? Remember, through you, all the nations of earth will be blessed. So, in Israel, in their songs of worship, the Psalms or in the prophets, they keep talking about the nations. All the nations you have made will come and worship before you, O Lord. They will bring, they will bring glory to your name. Whoops, too fast, I think. Oh, nope. Isaiah, in that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known among the nations what He has done. Right? So there's Isaiah talking about a time in the future where they are going to tell the nations who God is. Like, by going to them. Not just, not, just being, not just staying put, but by going to them. By the way, Israel did go to the nations in the Old Testament. As a form of punishment, they went into exile and then were brought back. And then Isaiah again. I will set a sign among them and I will send some of those who survived to the nations, right? I will send them, right? It's still future. I'm going to do this. To Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers. Not exactly sure why that was added, but... I don't know, I like it for whatever reason. To Tubal and Greece and to the distant islands that have not yet heard of my fame or seen my glory, they will proclaim my glory among the nations. God's promising something's going to happen when Israel comes back from exile. Something new is going to happen. And that something new is really not something new. It's something He promised to Abraham centuries before that. Then Habakkuk for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. All these promises. All of them rooted in this initial promise to Abraham to be a great nation and to be a blessing to all the nations. And here's how it kind of, now we're getting, we're moving faster now. Here's how it basically works. The whole Bible sort of bounces back and not bounces back and forth, but moves forward by moving from like a person or a small group to a large group Small group, large group. If you can see it, it starts with Adam and then Adam to the nations, right? I, I know all the things that happen there. And then to Abraham and then to his, to his immediate children, Israel. 
that leads to one man, a new Adam, Jesus, then to the nations. And that's, you can, and this is, I mean, that's, you can't really get more big picture than that, but that is exactly how it works. It's like this, like Adam, nations, Abraham, Israel, Jesus, the nations. From what, from beginning to end in the Bible, right? 1500 years, multiple authors, all kinds of different places, all kinds of different events, same story floating all the way through it. Same pattern of story all the way through it from beginning to end. Then, one of the most incredible things in the world happens. A, a couple, not a royal couple, not a rich couple, not an A-lister couple, not a couple with a big background. In fact, they've got a, there's, some kind of, there's something possibly weird about their background in terms of like there might be something dodgy about this woman's pregnancy. They're not rich. They're not well-known. They come into the temple and there's a guy named Simeon. And he's, just, he's an old man. They've been waiting for centuries for God to keep His promise. Roughly 400 years between the time of the last prophet, when the time of the last book of the Old Testament is written, and when the New Testament times start. That's a long time. And it looks like a lot of failure during that time. So what they're expecting is this king, right? God's going to come and wipe out the... He's going to come in like... First of all, he's going to take care of these dirty Romans. He's going to wipe them out and then put us on top. The king is coming. Well, the king comes, but not in a way that anybody expected. This couple from nowhere, they walk in with a baby. This man picks up a baby. Now, this is really important. This is a baby like any baby, doing all the baby stuff. And if you've ever been around a baby, this baby did that. He did. And do you know what? It's extraordinarily important for you that he did. And that he wasn't like a floaty, halo, angelic baby, right? That they brought him in. He was just like this. And there's a halo, and he coos at Simeon, and he's glowing, and then they sort of floats in the air. Nothing like that. You have no idea how important it is. You do. But it's important for us to remind ourselves how important it is for us that he be like every other baby. I mean, except without sin. I know if you're thinking, well, what about sin? Okay, yeah. So I've said it, except without sin. But if a baby did it, that baby did it. He looked like every baby. Every baby. And Simeon takes this little baby that at that time, eight days old, you could could hold him in one hand, and he looks at this baby. I mean, you want to talk, talk about a story. He looks at a baby and says, this is it. This is everything. This is everything we've been waiting for. Everything God has ever promised. And then says this, For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all people. Look at what it says. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Everything in a baby. And the child's mother and father marveled. I bet they did. Right? Can you imagine? Now, and I know that they had had angelic appearances before, but, you know, just a few years go by and you know, where'd the angels go? I don't know. And then you hear this thing for everything. So, what is God doing? God is taking up the thing He never dropped. 
And that is the promise to make Abraham a great nation. And just like he did it in the most unexpected, unlooked for way, that is through a barren woman and an old man. So now he does it in an even more dramatically unexpected, who would have planned it way, through a common looking baby from common looking parents with no background, no power, no influence, nothing to make them rise to the top, no name, nothing. And this is it. Everything. All at once. This is, I won't read, we won't spend too much time on this, but this is Paul, just Paul later in Galatians. This is Paul confirming what is going on with Jesus, right? That Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. Now think of the Great Commission again, which I'm now retitling the Great Fulfillment Commission. I'm not going to read it all again. I've already read it once. But basically this. The Great Commission is this. It's Jesus saying to his disciples, go out into all the world and tell everybody God kept his promise to Abraham. You see, when we, when we fulfill the Great Commission, we're not, we are going to, don't get me wrong, we are going out to tell people what God has done in Jesus. Absolutely. But do you understand, like, it's bigger than that. And I'm not saying evangelistically you lead off with a story about Abram. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm just saying we tend to think of evangelism and then missions as just like a, simply just a vocation or something. And some people have that vocation. But what I'm saying is a theology of missions is not just a theology of a particular vocation that some people have. It is all about what God had promised ages and ages ago to some guy living out in a desert that he fulfills by what? By regular people going out into the world telling people about Christ. That's the story of missions. And that's, that's your story, right? So, I'm not here today to tell you if, if, if it should be your vocation or if it should be your title or anything like this. I'm just saying if you've ever really... I guess what I would say is this. You are free to do as much vocation as you want. The one thing we're not free to do is to miss that our story is this story and that we're part of it. Right? That's the one thing we can't do. We can't afford to miss the fact that our stories are not just like from me being born and then if however far I can go back in my own family, family tree, which, by the way, is not very far, and then I was born and then I was saved. Don't get me wrong. Keep talking about stuff like that. But we sort of do that. There's my story of when I got saved, and now let me tell you about the Bible, but our whole story about when we got saved, or however you put it, is because God kept His promise to a man named Abram in the desert centuries ago. And it's a story. The blessing to the nations is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what the blessing is. That's how the nations, that's how the whole earth will be blessed through Abram. Not by simple physical population, right? That had its time, right? There was a blessing through population alone for a time. But now the blessing comes like this, and that is people going out and telling people about what? Well, I mean, what is Jesus? Who is Jesus? He is the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Every promise of God is yes and amen in Him. 
And so I think that's a nice way to conceive of every time we tell our testimony, every time we tell the story, if we think about, we think about going into missions, if you're sending, if you're going, if you're somewhere in between, when you think about yourself and your identity and who you are, all that is the foundation that comes well before we even talk about what we do. Whatever it is you do, you cannot avoid the fact that your story is the Bible story of missions. That you're in it. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody today should pack up a suitcase and move to, you know, I don't know, Mongolia tomorrow. In fact, nobody's going to do that from this room tomorrow. I don't think. You might. And I'm totally for that. But I think really to think about a theology of missions and what motivates us for missions in whatever form that takes, whether it's medical or relief or uh, full-time or short-term or whatever it is you got, whatever your gifts are, whatever your abilities are, whatever your means are, whatever your sending ability, whatever, all those things. All those things are vital and important. But they all sit on this foundation that the Bible clearly lays out that this is God's big plan for the world. It, it is. It has been. And it's going to continue being that. So I'm not going to read too many of these. These are just some texts um, that start where the, the disciples start going out. And this is in Acts, right? They ask him, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom of, uh, to Israel? I was going to say that's... That's one of the best questions anybody ever asked. Sometimes people think the disciples are still not getting it, but they do. Because um, that's a question based on reading Isaiah uh, and Ezekiel, where the two kingdoms will be brought together first and then the nations will be brought in. So that's a great question. It's not them like, what's going on here? And Jesus says, hey, just you'll see. And then he says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. And the whole book of Acts is basically like this. If you imagine this is Jerusalem, see from your perspective, I can't do it that way. Just who cares about the direction? It starts in Jerusalem and exactly follows this pattern and ends with what? The disciple to the Gentiles, otherwise known, the apostle to the Gentiles, otherwise known as Paul, in Rome. Right? Which is, obviously, they were smart enough to know that's not the ends of the earth. But the thing is, is it ends in Rome. Like the heart of the world of Gentiles. Or that part of the world, anyway. Heart of the Western world of Gentiles. Not the whole, or heart of the whole entire world. But think about that. That's another weird thing. The main disciple, the main apostle to the nations, not the only one, is in prison. That doesn't look super promising. Right? If you're on the ground at the time, you're like, man, we're killing it. Right? We've got our guys out there. They're either getting beaten half the time or they're in prison. And now Paul in prison forever. But that's how the story goes. And then it continues on. I'm not going to read all these texts. This is what happens. Right? Jerusalem, then to Samaria. This is, those, are, those are texts from Acts. Phrygia, Galatia, goes up to the Gentiles. Um... And then to Macedonia, Greece. Then to Rome, all the way to the end, which I'm conveniently calling the ends of the earth. And that's just in less than one generation of people. So Adam, right? We've seen this. Adam to the nations. Nations to Abram. Abram to Israel. Israel to Jesus. Jesus to the nations. 
And here we are. Right? Today, in this room. Now, I know we have sort of flipped the script a little bit to we sort of think somehow this part of the world is where everything goes out from. Right? We, we sort of do put it, we think of it that way. Like, go into all the world like it began in, like, North America. But we're, we're the nations. Right? If you're like, we're the nations. Look in the mirror. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't then go to the nations. But, I mean, the thing is, is we're in it. We're not just, like, the starting point at all. Right? When we have, like, Johnny come lately, really. But we're out in the nations. But that story kept going. Now, I got this, I got this from a pastor that I heard speak in chapel. And I can't remember who it was. I think it was Matt Chandler. I don't know. I'm just trying to give credit where credit's due. Here's sort of a timeline that gets you to where you are today. AD 51, Paul's in Greece. 52, Thomas, according to church tradition, right? We can't confirm it in the same way, but there's there's pretty good evidence that Thomas is in close to what we would close to India, not what we would call close to India. 54, Paul's third missionary journey, right? Where he goes and he comes back to Jerusalem and then he gets taken to Rome. After that, by 174, there are Christians in, in what we call Austria. By 280, there's Christians in northern Italy, up in the mountains. By 350, 50 through, 53% of the Roman Empire claims Christianity. I know the history behind that, so the claim is maybe a little sketchy. But, nevertheless, even though the claim of a lot of people was sketchy, if you think about Rome 300 years earlier, 200 years earlier, that's pretty remarkable considering all the things they did to stomp out this thing to, you know, a long time ago. So even if that's a sketchy number, it's still a remarkable number. By 432, Patrick is in Ireland. By 596, Augustine, that's not Augustine of Hippo, like if you, like not St. Augustine, right? Not St. Augustine, but another one. Is Archbishop of Canterbury. Um, there's 10,000 Christians counted there two years later. 635, Christians go to China. 740, Irish missionaries arrive in Iceland. 900, missionaries arrive in Norway. 1200, the Bible is now translated into 22 languages. 1498, uh, Christianity spreads to Kenya. And then, I, I go really fast now, you have this sort of Jesuit movement, and then the Reformation, and then the modern missions movement is spawned by the Reformation. And then, English Puritans, and then there's, of course, um, all, th- all kinds of things going on down in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the continent as well. I just can't fit it all in one PowerPoint slide. Then European immigrants, the American Great Awakening, Awakenings, westward expansion, Louisville, Kentucky. Here we are. All through you, all the nation of earth will be blessed. Now, is this a perfect timeline? No. But it serves the purpose. Right? Going back... Wait, that's where we end. Don't look. Close your eyes. Okay, there. Going back to that first call to that old man and his, with a barren wife, ultimately that story leads us all to where we are today with me talking to you and you sitting in this room and us talking about missions. Because it's, it's proof that God has kept his promise. And that's what he's called us to do is God has kept the promise and so he calls us to do what? 
to go out and be a blessing to the nations in all kinds of different ways, right? But primarily by doing what? Taking the blessing to people and telling them, telling them about Jesus, who is the promise of all God's, sorry, the fulfillment of all God's promise. And looking forward to this. This is from Revelation. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing, sorry, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there's the ultimate showing of the blessing to the nations. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations. And then the last word, that, so this is a, a little bit of a mishmash, right? So that's from Matthew. And then this, one, of the, one of the lines from near the end of Revelation, they will be my people and I will be their God. That all started with this promise to Abram. So, there's a lot more things that we could say about a theology of missions. Uh, I kind of like to put it this way. If, if we were writing a theology of missions book, this would be chapter one. Just sort of laying the foundation. But the, the great news is, and I'll, I'll stop uh, after this. The great news is this. This completely frees you up to think about missions, not just in terms of a vocation, and not just, especially not in terms of being just a locked-in, single-profile, certain set of gifts vocation. Because you are hardwired into the story, and it's your story, right? We don't have to be something that God didn't make us. We don't have to have a certain set of gifts that other people have. We don't have to have a certain sort of means that other people have. We are free to live out our part in the story according to whatever opportunities God gives us. And yeah, again, there's a lot more things we can say, but I just want you to go away today just thinking about the fact that that story, it's, again, it's not just a story about a whole bunch of people who lived a long time ago and then there's your testimony. Right? There's your testimony which has its roots in completely connected in a real, true, ultimate genealogy to all those people a long time ago and then the fulfillment of that promise in a man from Nazareth named Jesus. Thanks for your time.